Well, in light of what was said in the last conference, the one big question is, how do we attend Mass well? And if our desire should be to adore God and please Him, then we need to realize there are ways to attend Mass and ways not to attend Mass. Uh, the word attend has a certain meaning to it, and uh, it has to do with being more active than passive. Being in attendance means just to be physically present. But when we go to Mass, we should have the idea that we are going there to, to render a service. In a sense, we're going there to do something, not just to passively receive something. Every now and then you hear somebody say, well, I don't get anything out of it, so I don't go. Well, the reason why they don't get anything out of it is because they're not bringing anything to it. And when we attend Mass, we have to attend the Mass with the understanding we are going there as an act of worship to adore God. Whenever people approach the Mass with that, with that attitude, with that thought, then they go there prepared to accomplish something. Now, of course, our purpose in going is not to, uh, to try to take over for our Lord. We know that when he comes, he is there to accomplish something also. And we cannot accomplish what he accomplishes. Nonetheless, we have to bring something to the Mass to join it with what he has to give. And uh, otherwise, we are not going to receive the graces that come from the Mass. So the first thing we do, we have to have the right attitude, and we have to have the right approach in going to Mass. We have to approach the Mass with the right attitude, even as you would approach it to Calvary. When you think of what happened on Calvary, and you think of this outpouring of graces that took place in Calvary, the redemption of mankind, the opening of the gates of heaven, all those wonderful things, and you look at those people who were there, and how many of them really understood anything about what was happening. Our Blessed Mother alone understood the significance of what was happening. Even St. John and the devout women who were there, and Mary Magdalene, of all people, one of these great sinners from whom our Lord had driven seven devils. She was so evil. She was so completely surrendered to evil that she did not understand what happened to her before her very eyes. She didn't appreciate the significance. It was only later that she would come to understand, even with St. John, the significance of what they had just witnessed. But the vast majority of people on Calvary were there and part of that. And we may say their part was very different from the part of St. John, the part of Mary Magdalene, the part of the devout women, or even very different from the part of our Blessed Lady. And we'd be right in saying that. I mean, the soldiers who were crucifying our Lord, the high priests of the Jews who were taunting him and mocking him, they had a very different part to play in the crucifixion, in what was going on in Calvary, than the Blessed Mother and St. John. Of course, because Our Lady, St. John, St. Mary Magdalene, the devout ladies who were there, the devout women, were brought there by love for our Lord, whereas the other ones were brought there by indifference or hatred. But I can't help but think that what happened on Calvary was kind of in microcosm what happens throughout the entire world to all mankind, because there are relatively few, we understand, who will be saved. Our Lord says, our Lord says, 
that narrow is the way and difficult that leads to life, and broad is the way that leads to perdition. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there are that follow that way. Broad is the way that leads to perdition, and many there are that go that way. And that corresponds to what Our Lady said at Fatima, that the souls going to hell are like the autumn leaves that fall from the trees. And the, the wisdom of the Church in her doctors and fathers of the Church and her spiritual writers has made it very clear that there are not as many who will be saved among of the human race as will be lost, sad to say. Which makes it all the more significant that we are here doing this right now because this is a statement on your part that you really do intend to save your soul. And the fact that you're here is even more of a statement that God is giving you the grace. God wants you in heaven with him. And you're cooperating with the grace that he's giving you. So even your very presence here is a statement that you want to follow that narrow way and you want to be among those who are saved. And you want your loved ones also to be among those who are saved. And that is also why you're here, because you realize this is the most important thing you can be doing for your loved ones right now is doing this and uh, because you are the mo a significant influence in their lives. And you, especially you fathers, can obtain graces for your children that are reserved in a sense for you to obtain for them. So your presence here is very significant. This is not a guarantee that you will be saved, but it does tell you this much, that there's a grace that moved you and that you are cooperating with the grace. To that extent, that's the least, the very least that you can say. So you want to draw closer to our Lord, draw closer to him in the Mass. You want to draw closer to our Lord, draw closer to him in the Blessed Sacrament. How close can you draw? How close can you come to him in the Blessed Sacrament? Can you touch him? Say, well, the priest's hands are obviously consecrated to touch our Lord. But does our Lord touch you? Yes, he does. He touches your tongue. He does come to you. You do not handle him. Quite something more remarkable than that. I mean, the priest being able to handle our Lord and to handle the Blessed Sacrament is a great privilege of the priest. That's true. But what privilege would that be to the priest if he couldn't do what you do? If he couldn't receive him, if he couldn't take the host and put it in his own mouth and swallow that host and take it as food, because it is not just an artifact to be handled. It is a privilege of the priest to be able to consecrate the host. Truly, it is a privilege of the priest to be able to touch the host with his fingers. Truly it is. But what good would that avail a priest if he couldn't do what you do? And what any of the faithful do, even the littlest child who has received his first communion can do something. And if the priest were not able to do this, despite the fact that he could consecrate the very body and blood of Christ, despite the fact that he could handle the body and blood of Christ, despite the fact that he could actually give the host to others. If he couldn't take it himself, it would avail him not. So this is the greatest privilege of all. It's something you share with the priest because of your baptism. That the most important thing, the reason why our Lord is here in the Blessed Sacrament is yours, accessible to you, that you can receive him. And so when you come to Holy Mass, come with the idea that our Lord is coming from heaven to bring his love for you, 
And that is what brings him here. That's what motivates him. That's the whole point. And when you come to Mass, you're bringing what love you have for him. And so you're coming to receive his love for you and you're coming to offer him your love for him. So when you come to the communion rail, you are mutually bestowing that love on each other, his love for you and your love for him. So it's an exchange of love, you might say. And we need to think about that. That is the worship that we offer our Lord in the Mass, receiving his love for us gratefully and giving our love for him. Now that is true adoration and that is true worship because adoration does begin in the will and the will is made for the act of love. So we have to approach the Mass with the right, with the right attitude, with the right, with the right um, mentality of what we're doing, what we're going to accomplish there, what our Lord is going to accomplish in us there. Now, with regard to uh, the Mass, we, we also should have a, a greater understanding, the Catholic understanding, of what prayer is in, in general, and the idea of lifting up one's heart and mind to God and turning one's attention to God, thinking of him, and making an act of love for him. That is essentially what prayer is, as you know. And in the Mass, you're called upon to do that in a very special way. We, uh, and I've mentioned this before, we pray the Confitior. And again, those who are not Catholic might be totally lost by the idea of the Confitior. You see, public prayer, public prayer outside the Catholic Church is not what it is inside the Catholic Church. The, the idea of Protestantism, the, Protestantism is the idea of the individual before God. And so they have this idea of private prayer. I mean, sacraments, they, they don't even have the Catholic understanding of what a sacrament is. They've eliminated a number of the sacraments. They've kept others which they call sacraments, but they don't think of them the same way. They keep the word, but it doesn't mean the same thing. You see, for one outside of our faith, a Protestant, the idea of a sacrament is to uh, inspire confidence. That's what, a, that's what a sacrament is for, baptism, so on. That is meant to inspire a faith, they say, but it's really a confidence in the fact that Christ died for them on the cross. And whatever, whatever they can do that stirs up that faith is actually saving. It, it, is, it is something saving. Why? Because their faith, they're saved by faith alone. That's a fundamental Protestant principle. They're saved by faith alone. And that, by that they mean their confidence that Christ died for them on the cross, the price is paid. And if they accept that, they're saved once and for all. Fundamental Protestant idea. But you, any one of you here, could refute that. Any one of you has, has the knowledge you need right now to be able to refute that idea and show them if they would listen to you that that is wrong. But that is not true. And you should have the knowledge from the scriptures to be able to show them in the sacred scriptures where they are wrong. 
But just because you may know that they're wrong and you may be able to show them where they're wrong in the sacred scriptures. And by the way, if you're sitting there thinking, you got to think I can do that. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure where I'd start. I'm not sure how, what I'd, where I'd even point in the sacred scriptures to show that that idea is wrong. You need to do your homework. And then you need, you need to know how to do that. Okay. You need the answers for them. Okay. But you need them for you too. <laughs> but just because we know how to refute a Protestant idea, it doesn't mean we know the Catholic idea. It doesn't mean we really have the Catholic understanding. We have servers who go to Servas. Okay. They pray the Confidio. What are they thinking? I have no idea. I know what noises they're making, but I don't know what's in their mind, and I don't know what's in their heart. You're on the pew listening to them pray the Confidio. What are you thinking? I don't know. I hope you're thinking what the prayer is saying. Then, later on in the Mass, before the communion, the servers lead the, they pray the Confidio for you, on your behalf. What are they thinking? What are you thinking? I don't know. But what is the sense of the Confidio? The sense of the Confidio is such that it sets the tone for the entire Mass. It sets the tone for the entire Mass. For the priest, the words, intro ibo ad altare dei, intro ibo ad altare dei, set the tone for the Mass for him. He's going to the altar of God and he knows what that altar is. It is, of course, Calvary. In a sense, the Confidior sets the tone for you. Why? Because when you say, I confess to Almighty God, to Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, to Holy Michael the Archangel, to St. John the Baptist, when, you are, when you're saying those words, you are actually saying those words with a certain understanding, because if you don't have this understanding, you don't understand. You are confessing before the entire court of heaven, is what you're doing. You are there as the priest is bowing down, as the servers are bowing down and praying this prayer, you also are confessing before the entire court of heaven that you are a sinner. You confess before them all that you acknowledge your sin before them all, and then you ask them all to pray for you. So you're actually in prayer and you're addressing Almighty God and his saints and his angels to admit that you are a sinner. But then the second part of the prayer, idio precor, beata Maria virginem, therefore I I ask or beseech Blessed Mary of a Virgin, but not the Father. Why? Because you are asking them to pray for you. And you are confessing to God in the first place, and all the court of heaven, that you're a sinner. But the second part of the prayer of the Confidior, you are asking them to pray for you. I mean, not asking God to pray for you, clearly. You're not asking God to pray to himself for you. Actually, the Son of God is doing that. In any case, as the mediator between God and man, he's offered that prayer, and it, and it continues perpetuated in time. Not only at the right hand of the Father does he perpetuate that prayer, he perpetuates that prayer here in the Mass, praying for you. But when you ask the court in heaven to pray for you, you're asking our Blessed Mother and the angels and the saints to pray for you. But you see, the very fact that you're you're asking them to pray for you means you're talking to them, you're addressing them, you're speaking to them, 
and you're speaking to them as though they can actually hear you, as though they can actually hear you and understand you, as though they know at that moment that you are asking for their prayers, as though they can respond to that prayer. Because you're saying it with confidence, you wouldn't be asking this prayer. The church wouldn't be teaching you to ask for that unless it would be granted. And so you're asking for something that you believe is actually happening, that as a result of you personally asking the Blessed Mother and St. Michael the Archangel and St. John the Baptist and the entire court of heaven to pray for you, that in fact you have the court of heaven praying for you at that very moment because you're asking. This is what the church is teaching us to do. Have we learned that lesson? Is that what we're actually thinking while we're praying the Confitior? Do we understand the significance of this prayer? We realize that on Calvary, you had some devout souls who were willing to go through the most traumatic event of their lives out of love for our Lord, being associated with him there, as much as they could, on Calvary, silently concentrating on him, in this sea of hatred and contempt against him. And you see these devout souls there, surrounded by this maelstrom of hatred, but in the midst of this, there is one who is praying for mercy for all of us. And so it's not just the people present there. We are taught to understand that, the, again, the court of heaven, the angels, the angels were there. Were there saints there? Well, the only saints would have been on the ground, our blessed lady, still in this mortal life. All the other devout souls of the Old Testament we're still in the limbo of the just. It was only our Lord's death on that cross that would free them from that prison. They could not enter heaven. So when we think about the court of heaven being present at the crucifixion of the Son of God, we realize that the only court of heaven at that time was the angels that there were no saints of the human race in heaven, precisely because the gates of heaven were closed against us. And it was that sacrificial death that was necessary to open them. St. Peter tells us that from the cross, our Lord's soul descended into hell as we pray, as we pray in the creed, to preach the gospel to the dead. That's what St. Peter says. You know that. He went to the souls of the just who had been waiting for him. As our Lord told the Jews, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. No wonder he had been waiting in the limbo of the just for all those centuries for that very moment to come. So, when we attend Mass, we also have to understand this, that as we invoke the court of heaven in praying the Confidior, that they are there. 
that they really are attentive to the Mass? Is it that the angels and the saints all kind of leave heaven and come flocking and invisibly hovering around the altar during Mass? Is that right? Not exactly, no. Rather, it's something much more wonderful than that. And it is this, that they do not come to us it is though, as though we come to them. And that, by that I mean this, that during the Mass, this sacrifice is being offered here on this earth in this creation. But we have to not forget the fact that this creation is in existence because it is in the mind of God. It is known to him. It is loved by him. It is willed to exist by him. So whereas we often think, very humanly speaking, about this universe being very, very large and somehow being here and God being outside of the universe, somewhere out there in the heavens and ruling the universe from there as though we're, we're kind of speaking to try to get our prayer out to him. His presence is so immediate throughout all of this world that nothing in this world or any world could exist without his mindfulness of it. And by that I mean the very hairs on our heads are numbered and could not exist without his mindfulness. If the people in those days that thought in terms of atoms and protons and neutrons and electrons and so on, our Lord might as well have already said, the very electrons in the universe are numbered. God knows them all. There is no existence without his will sustaining it. And so we have to realize that this entire universe is contained in a sense, I mean, in a... I have to use the word carefully here, but the entire universe is contained within the mind of God by, in terms of causality, in terms of what causes the universe to exist, is the power of the divine mind. So that we see the angels and the saints then, because of the beatific vision, because of their knowledge of God that is so much more intimate than anything we can imagine, they see in God this entire universe, and they see us, and they know us. I've made this point before. I just don't know that it really sinks in. When we, when we attend Mass, we realize that we are going about something, going about life, going about our Father's business with our Lord, we're going about that business within the divine mind. This is all happening within the divine mind. And so the angels and the saints actually are much closer to us than if they came from heaven to earth and as though they stepped out of heaven to do it. They don't have to step out of heaven to come to earth. We talk about our Lord descending from heaven and that is our understanding. Our Lord has accommodated that to our understanding. This is the way we, in a sense, have to, have to envision this or imagine this.
But nonetheless, our faith teaches us to go beyond the power of the imagination in what we know to be true, because we're asked to believe mysteries of faith that simply transcend the power of the human mind to think, imagine, explain. And this is one of those things. The angels and the saints are attentive to the Son of God, and when we offer the Mass here, they see the Son of God. They see what you and I can only believe. They see him here. As they see him seated at the right hand of the Father, they see him in all of his glory. In his reality, they see him as God and man. You know that our Lord Jesus Christ, as God, is everywhere. Everywhere. That without him, in him was made and nothing was made without him. Okay, through him, all things are made. And so he is with the Father and the Holy Ghost, the, just more on to a better word, a co-op, the cooperator in the creation of mankind, in the creation of the entire universe. But as man, he is not everywhere. As man, as God made man, he is present at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And the only other place he is, is in the Blessed Sacrament here on earth. That's where the Son of God is as man, as God and man. He is in the tabernacle. As God, he cannot be contained. The whole idea is ridiculous, that God could be contained somewhere. But as man, he can be. And so much so that he can actually place himself under the appearances of bread and wine and make himself present there. So you see what a privilege it is to have that Eucharistic presence, that divine presence, coupled with the human presence of Christ in the tabernacle, because there you have your Savior. There you have God as your Savior, present in that tabernacle as you have him nowhere else. And it is this that has moved him to come to you. Your Savior is moved to come to you in this way. Because he's not done saving you. He has done redeeming you, but he's not finished saving you. So his work continues here. In you and by you and through you, his work must continue here. So when we pray the Confidior, I, I hope that henceforth, uh, you'll think of these things, you'll be aware of what you're saying, and not just the words that are in your mouth and coming out of your mouth, but what should be in your mind. When we pray the prayer of the Confitior, it should mean so much more than I fear it does so often. The throngs of the angels, and now the saints with them, attentive to the prayer that you're offering, to your prayer, Legions, you know, our Lord said at the Garden of Gethsemane, remember when Peter drew his sword and sliced off the ear of the high priest's servant? I mentioned that earlier. And our Lord told him to put your sword away. Our Lord said to Peter, do you not know that my father would send me to my rescue 72,000 angels? Our Lord said 12 legions of angels. In other words, he didn't need 12 apostles to protect him, one of whom had turned traitor, 
The other one was about to deny him. He didn't need Peter's sword. All it would take was one single thought of our Lord. And the father would have sent 12 legions of angels to assist him in that moment that he was taken, about to be taken. But our Lord didn't ask for that rescue. It was there for him, though. If God the Father would have sent 12 legions of angels, about six thousands of angels per legion, to Calvary that night to rescue our Lord, what do you think happens at the altar at Mass when our Lord is crucified? How were the angels present there? They were not there to intervene, though. They were there to adore. And so they are. So they are still there. They are still rendering that homage to their God, and they are filled with wonder at his power, at becoming man. Yes, that God, who is infinitely greater than they, would consent to be united with a nature that is so far below or beneath or inferior to theirs. That causes them tremendous wonder. And it adds to the angels, even the angels' understanding of the goodness of God. They see that as a most wonderful expression of God's goodness that he would do that when it was one of their own angels who refused not to become man, but just to place himself at the service of man's salvation and at the service of God. One of their own angels refused to do that, and then they see the angels see God coming and becoming man in order to rescue man, fallen man, to do something for man that he could not do for them. The angels are astonished at this. They still, and they always will, wonder at this, as they will see it so clearly. What should be our thoughts on the very subject when we are the ones being rescued? God didn't send 12 legions of angels to rescue me from my sins. God did not send 12 legions of angels to rescue you. He sent his own son. He sent his own son to do that, whom he would not rescue with those 12 legions of angels. Now they are at his disposal, as it were, and adoring there at the altar. So thank God for that and ask for the grace to appreciate it, to understand it, to the significance of what is happening at the Mass no matter what the outward circumstances may be or the worldly circumstances, the circumstances of the faith remain the same. And now this, this does take us to something that happened recently that uh, is tragic, truly, the modernism afflicting the church and the souls of many people who still have the faith and who don't know what to do about that, who are still held prisoner by the modernists, and still held prisoner by, prisoners by modernism. You know, I guess I could make the distinction there between the people who go to the Novus Ordo, the New Order, and think of that as being Catholic, and think of that as being the Catholic Church. 
they are being held prisoner by the modernists, even though many of those dear people still have the faith. Do we know that for a fact? Yes, we do. How do we know that many of those who still go to the Novus Ordo liturgy and see the Novus Ordo church that came out of Vatican II, that they see this as the Catholic religion? How do we know that there are many of them who still have the true Catholic faith? Because they keep coming. Because they keep coming. They find their way back. Some of them don't find their way back. Some of them never started there in the first place. They're too young. They weren't even born when Vatican II happened. And yet somehow they find their way. And they do. They find their way to the traditional Catholic faith. They have that faith even while they're going to the Novus Ordo. And they find that faith offended by the Novus Ordo. They find themselves very uncomfortable by being there, even offended, even angered by it, but always troubled by it, because they feel they see somehow a contradiction between what they believe, between what they love, and the Novus Ordo itself. They find that they're never really comfortable there. They see a contradiction. They sense a contradiction. There are people like that, and many of them in the Novus Ordo to this day, who are desperately trying to explain what's happening to themselves, to others, and they, they're at a loss. They come up with all kinds of fantastic theories to try to explain what's happening, even as they slog through the swamp of the Novus Ordo, day after day, week after week, year after year. We know they're out there because they surface at the traditional Mass, on a fairly regular basis. And all we can say is, thanks be to God. He's giving the grace to these dear people, and they are cooperating with the grace. How many more of them are there? We don't know. All we know is that they are there. Some of our own friends and relatives, we ourselves, who might have been going to the Nova Soto for a while, have found our way through. And here we are. So we're proof positive that this can happen and is in fact happening there's no denying it. Somehow, people's faith is surviving the Novus Ordo so that they can come back, or for the first time in their lives, come to the traditional faith, the traditional Mass, and practice the traditional Catholic religion. So, we think of these poor people, they are being held prisoner by the moderns. God make, enables them to escape. But the people who are actually falling into the modernist way of thinking they're not just being held prisoner by the modernists, they're being held prisoner by modernism. That's the worst servitude and captivity of all. Their minds and their hearts are being held captive by modernism. This is the hardest, hardest penalty of all, that one can be uh, held prisoner by, by Satan himself this way, and by, by let, because make no mistake about it, Modernism is an invention of Satan. It is not of God by any means. And so these people are being held, held captive by these, this false, very, the totally anti-Catholic faith. So when we see the fruits of Vatican II and we see the fruits of modernism appearing more and more starkly, more and more boldly, it can be very jarring to us. 
And we, we wonder how people who still have the faith in the Novus Ordo can continue to hold on to it. But that's why we have to pray for them. We have to pray for them and be ready to enlighten them and to guide them whenever we get the opportunity to do so. In other words, I think we're too much too passive about this. We're letting these things happen and we should be more proactive about these things because there are people out there. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to uh, go through life saying, well, if I bump into anybody who still has the faith, maybe I'll throw them a life preserver. It's another thing to say, I know they're out there and I know they still have the faith and I'm going to go find them and I'm going to go try to bring them to safety. As St. James says, what good does it, does it do and who has true charity? What good does it do for one to say to somebody who's hungry, well, go eat something? Unless you give them something to eat. And that's the difference between being very passive and being proactive about the idea that there are souls out there that need truth, and especially now. Why do I say especially now? Because it's becoming more and more obvious to so many people that the Vatican is corrupted. The Vatican has been taken. The Vatican has been, has fallen into the hands of the enemies of Christ. And one of the exhibits has to do with Corpus Christi. Francis himself was celebrating the feast of Corpus Christi in his own way, in the Nova Soto way. He actually had a liturgy and then did not participate in the Eucharistic procession that took place. It wasn't on the Thursday of Corpus Christi. As you know, the Novus Ordo has uh, basically abandoned the idea of holy days and transferred them all to the following Sunday. So this was happening on the Sunday after what you and I know as the Feast of Corpus Christi. Francis did not take part in the procession itself, he actually was driven to the end point where he got out and gave the benediction. He would not even kneel down on the kneeler that was provided. He would not kneel before the Blessed Sacrament. He's known for that now, far and wide, that he will not kneel before the Blessed Sacrament. He will kneel before Muslim prisoners. He'll kneel before uh, the leader warlords leading their nations into... Uh, terrible strife and, uh, and misery, he will kneel before them and even kiss their shoes. He will not kneel before the Blessed Sacrament. But the homily he gave on the occasion of this so-called celebration was, uh, again, another prime example of his own lack of faith and his, actually that he has an anti-faith. Does Francis even know what the Catholic faith is? He manifests a, such a profound lack of knowledge of the Catholic faith that it's hard to believe that he could say these things if he had any knowledge whatsoever of the Catholic faith. But anyway, to get back to the point, he says in his homily here that, and uh, I ask our what Catholics believe, folks who are, who've already heard this because we did the last program on this very subject, 
partly on this very subject, that Francis says this in the, let us avoid being infected by that arrogance. Let us not let ourselves be overcome by bitterness for we eat the bread that contains all sweetness within it. God's people love to praise, not complain. We were created to bless, not grumble. In the presence of the Eucharist, Jesus, who becomes bread, this simple bread that contains the entire reality of the church, let us learn to bless all that we have, to praise God, to bless and not curse all that has led us to this moment and to speak words of encouragement to others. Now, this might sound very pious to some people, but they are people who are ignorant of the Catholic faith because it is absolutely contrary to all Catholic understanding of the Blessed Eucharist and our Lord's presence there, absolutely contrary to that, to say that Jesus becomes bread. That is not true. Jesus does not become bread. That is not the doctrine of transubstantiation of our Catholic faith. Our Lord at the Last Supper did not take the bread and say to his apostles, take this and all of you eat of that. This bread is my body. He did not take the chalice and say, take and drink of this. Just chalice is a cup of wine of my blood, or this wine is the cup of my blood. He didn't say that. We understand that what takes place at the consecration is transubstantiation so that the actual substance of the bread and the substance of the wine are no more. That the very substance of our Lord, his body and his blood and his very soul and his divine person are present there. And they use, you might say, they maintain the appearances all that is sensible, all that you can see and hear and taste and touch of the bless of bread remains, but the reality is the presence of the Son of God. And that our Lord is truly and fully present there as he was hanging on the cross. He is truly and really present there as he was in the manger. This is what Saint Justin Martyr tells us in toward the middle of the second century. AD. This is the faith of the Catholic Church. What Francis says here is not. It would be considered a blasphemy, certainly, to say that Jesus becomes bread. The Son of God became man, that is true. But it is not true, then, that that God and man becomes bread. And it is also not true to say that the simple bread then contains the entire reality of the church. To say that the simple bread contains the entire reality of the church, even if one believed in the Blessed Sacrament, that it is our Lord himself, you'd have to say that it does not contain the entire reality of the church. My, your soul and mine, this is of the reality of the church here. We have to be pantheists to believe that we are contained in the bread with Christ, we are contained within Christ, as it were, contained within him, as though we are actually substantially united with him. We say that 
the Son of God, the eternal Son of God, is substantially united. We say the humanity of our Lord. We say the humanity of Christ is substantially united to the Word of God, quote-unquote, from the litany of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. That the substance, the very humanity of Christ, is united with that divine person, that it becomes the human substance taken by the Son of God. But to say that we are all of that same substance and to say that we are substantially united to the Son of God, that we are substantially united to him, we cannot say that. We would have to share his nature, in a sense, for us to do that. So to say that it contains the entire reality of the church simply is not true. Anyway, it would take some explaining, and I'm sorry if I'm not doing a very good job of it, but also he says later on in his talk that we find in the Eucharist God himself contained in a piece of bread. Is that what we find in the Holy Eucharist? God contained in a piece of bread? No. Absolutely not. This is so absolutely contrary to the teaching of the church that one has to see in this, certainly, uh, again, a negation of the faith, perhaps due to an absolute ignorance of the faith, perhaps due to a denial of what he knows to be the faith. But it is just a an inconceivable, an inconceivable attack on the Catholic faith and its understanding of the Holy Eucharist. To think that this would be given in Rome on, uh, in celebrating at least uh, professively the Feast of Corpus Christi, you see how our Lord is insulted and offended now. And uh, this means you and I have even more of an obligation to be more proactive in looking for those who really do believe that our Lord is present in the Blessed Sacrament, that our Lord doesn't just become a piece of bread. We have to see the, the idea of modernism at work here because we're going to be talking about this whole question of modernism on the conference tomorrow night and how it, like, how it, modernism, like Mormonism itself, is a manifestation of Gnosticism and how it actually, actually follows, well, the principal ideas even of the, of Kabbalah, the, the Kabbal, the Jewish Kabbal. So the reason why I'm getting into all of these things, talking about things that Francis is doing, because he, as the quintessential modernist, enables us to see modernism for what it is. Now, this now takes us to the Sacred Heart. I realize, um, okay, well, actually, it's not that late. still have a few minutes here. We have to think of the coming Feast of the Sacred Heart. As I mentioned to you earlier this morning, that the Sacred Heart of Jesus is actually living there in the tabernacle. His actual living heart is there. You receive his living heart into you. When we read the apparitions of our Lord to St. Margaret Mary, 
we read that our Lord took his heart out of his chest and exchanged hearts with her, that he actually placed his heart in her. And we think, well, isn't that wonderful? And it is. It truly is wonderful. Beautiful. But that's what our Lord does to you every time you receive Holy Communion. By, by the apparitions that he gave to St. Margaret Mary, our Lord was actually showing her his intention. He's showing her why he was there in the Blessed Sacrament and why he came in that way. If our Lord had come in any other way, we couldn't receive him as we do because he comes in this way. He comes in this way precisely to be our food. Why? Because this we can take into ourselves. And our Lord wants to be united with us. Our Lord wants to be united with us, yes, even body and soul. As he works through the body to, to give his grace to the soul, through the sacraments. So in this sacrament, he works through the body to gain access to the soul, did I say, to, so that his, his grace can work in the soul. Because our bodies and our souls are substantially united. And so when we see our Lord here held up before us in the Blessed Sacrament and the priest addresses us, he says first, And those words you know are essentially the words of St. John the Baptist. We are within the octave of the feast of this great St. John the Baptist, who is truly a man's man. He was truly a man's saint. And these are the words that the priest uses to address you. And the first word he says is, Ecce, behold. Is it, a, is it a command? It actually is. It's not just an invitation. It is actually as ecce, behold. Now, do the servers understand what is being said? Do they actually look at the Blessed Sacrament when the priest says that? Sometimes they don't. Many times they don't. As though they do not understand the significance of what is happening before their very eyes. But the priest is actually telling them. And everybody else in the church, look, look, behold, see this. Take your power of vision and focus on this. <laughs> That's what the priest is telling you. Ecce agnus Dei, ecce qui tolit peccatamundi. Behold him who takes away the sins of the world. And you see there the Son of God, you might say reduced to this, but he's not really reduced to this in the sense that he doesn't lower himself, he doesn't stop being God, when God, we say, became man, he didn't stop being God. It doesn't mean became in that sense. So he changed, he changed identities. So he, he changed natures, exchanging one for another. That's not what we're saying here. We're saying that this is the same God, eternal, uncreated, infinitely powerful, who is here in this way. Truly astounding for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. But then the priest quotes a pagan soldier. And this was a man who our Lord praised, saying, I have not found such great faith in Israel as this pagan soldier has. 
Lord, I am not worthy that thou shouldst come under my roof, but speak with the word, my soul shall be healed. Only now we say, come into my soul. But speak but the word, and my soul, not my servant, my soul shall be healed. So we find there the faith of John the Baptist, and we find the faith of this Roman centurion expressed there when the priest finally turns to you with a host to give it to you in Holy Communion. It's as though bringing the best of all the Jewish people, John the Baptist, the man who, of whom no greater was born of woman, we invoke him, and we invoke the words of the Roman soldier whose faith exceeded that even of the people of Israel, even of the apostles themselves. And these are the two we invoke in holding that up. The Jew and the Gentile speak still through the mouth of the priest at that moment. And so we say, of course, O Lord, I am not worthy. Dominate on Sintinus, with interest of Tectorbeum, that thou shouldst come into my soul. Three times we say that, and then you have the privilege of receiving him into yourselves. Realize what he's doing there is he's, he's doing not just figuratively or in terms of an apparition. He's actually placing within you his own sacred heart. He is actually giving you his heart and placing it within you. So this feast that we're going to be celebrating tomorrow is intimately bound with the feast of Corpus Christi, of course. As I say, it's, it's in a way entering deeper and deeper and deeper into this Eucharistic presence here. And finally, into the very heart of our Lord. This is what we do on the Feast of the Sacred Heart with its octave. So we think about the image of the Sacred Heart now, the image that God has shown us, the image that God has shown us on the cross, the image that God has shown us through the church in the devotion to the Sacred Heart, which we learn from St. Gertrude the Great, is reserved by God for these last times, not the devotion to uh, mercy, the divine mercy, which actually has nothing of the sacred heart in it. Whereas we look at the image of Christ that is presented to us in the divine mercy, and we notice the absence, not the presence, the absence of the heart. Truly a worthy devotion for the modernists, or of the modernists. But the devotion to the Sacred Heart was actually given by God to be present at this time when we would need access to that Sacred Heart of Jesus. And what about the imagery that it shows there? We see the Sacred Heart of Jesus with flames, not surrounded by flames, but flames actually coming from the heart of our Lord. And so there are those who say, and rightly so, that the flames that issue from the heart of our Lord are the flames of his love. 
Now, if we see a condemned soul, we see it surrounded and engulfed in flames. But that's not what we see in the Sacred Heart. In the image of the Sacred Heart, we see rather the flames issuing from the Sacred Heart, as though it were a kind of furnace. And as you know, it's, it's kind of a counterpoint in a way, this imagery, this image of the Sacred Heart to the fires of hell. Because in the fires of hell, we have this enormous cavern filled with flames and streams of anguish. And it is actually a gigantic vessel of hatred, is what it is. Hell is, a, is an enormous vessel of hatred, where every single spirit in hell is filled with hatred for every other single spirit of hell, and even hatred for itself. This is the awful reality of hell. It is the worst reality of hell, far worse than the physical sufferings of hell or the spiritual sufferings of the, the hatred that consumes the place without consuming it. But if hell is filled with that hatred, it's like this enormous, enormous uh, cavern of hatred, we might say, then the heart of our Lord is filled with exactly the opposite. It is filled with a real love, profound love. It is a vessel of divine love. And the flames represent that, that vessel of divine love. And you and I are going to wind up in one place or the other for the rest of eternity. We are going to wind up there forever in that that cavern of hatred, which is consumed by the flames of hatred, which was created by hatred, you might say. Or we are going to be, when I say created for this, not by hatred in the sense that God created hell, he did create hell. And he didn't create hell because of his hatred, because of the hatred of his divinity. As I say, sin is an attack on God's person, on God being God. That's how awful it is. And so those who sin and those who do that have no place in heaven. Hell is the only place for them. But in the vessel of our Lord's heart, we have a place. We have a place there for ourselves. Now, it's also important to remember, though, that the flame symbolizes divinity. And so when we see the image of the Sacred Heart with the flames coming from it, we have to think in terms of the burning bush in the desert of Marian, where God appeared to and spoke from the flame of the burning bush, because the flame was the outward representation of the divine presence. We still have the flames in our sanctuary lamps and so on as symbols of the divine presence. But in this case, the flame of the burning bush really was a symbol of the divine presence, and God actually addressed Moses from that flame. It wasn't from the bush, it was from the flame that God spoke. And there God gave Moses his name, I am the one who is, who exists, and all that exists exists because of me. I give it existence. That is its significance. But when you see these flames coming from the heart of our Lord, you realize this is also saying that the heart of our Lord is exactly substantially united to the divine word of God. That this is the heart 
of God. Can I actually say that? Can I actually say that this heart is this heart of flesh, this heart of flesh like mine, this heart that began beating one day in the womb of his mother, Mary, that just as mine did, that this heart that stopped beating on the cross one day, that this, this heart is actually the heart of God. And I can actually say that. In fact, I must say that. Anything less would not be true. This actual heart is the heart of a divine person. He took that heart to himself precisely to do what he did, to live a human life and to die an inhuman death. To this day, that heart is with our Lord at the right hand of the Father and in the Blessed Sacrament here and at the right hand of the Father, and here in the Blessed Sacrament, it is the heart that was conceived in the womb of the Blessed Mother by the power of the Holy Ghost and developed there. It was the heart that we understand St. John heard at the Last Supper when he leaned his head on the chest of our Lord. It was the heart that stopped beating on the cross that was carried to the tomb dead and buried. It was the heart that rose from the dead and was glorified and is now at the right hand of the Father glorified and in the Blessed Sacrament, risen and glorified, alive. So we see even in the flames, that message, that this is the heart of God. We see also in the imagery of the Sacred Heart, we see rays of light coming from the heart. They're faint, and they're all around the Sacred Heart. They're very faint. They might even be missed in light of the, some of the more striking imagery. But these rays are actually sim represented by the monstrance. When you put the host in the monstrance and you see the rays coming there, it is also meant to be a kind of, not just a reliquary, because the reliquary contains the dead remains of a saint awaiting the resurrection. They are died, but they haven't been raised and glorified. But in the host, in the monstrance, we don't just have a, a relic and a reliquary. We have an actual living, glorified Son of God present in there. And if we were the angels who would see the brilliance of the light from that sacred host, but we are still blind to it here because our sight is limited to the eyes. Imagine if you were imprisoned Imagine if you were imprisoned in a small room that you could not escape, there was no door, but that the only light would come from a little hole here in the ceiling. The only sound would come from a little hole here in the wall. The only food you could take was shoved under a little opening in the door. Well, we're all, we're all imprisoned like that. We are essentially imprisoned 
in the material limitations of the body and the nervous system in interacting with the outside world. Whatever we see must come through the eyes. Whatever we taste must go through the mouth. Whatever we hear must come through the ears. So we're all, in a sense, in this mortal life in a kind of prison like that. But when that prison falls away and the soul is freed from it, the limitations of the body, then it's as though those walls fall away. This imagery was actually given by Monsignor Robert Hugh Benson in his novel, The Lord of the World, with the walls of the existence falling away. And then we see, then we can see what the angels see. And even when we're reunited with the body at the resurrection, the body will no longer be that limitation. It will no longer be like that prison for the soul. Not at all, because the soul will be glorified, and so will the body. So we don't often notice these rays of life as they are portrayed in the image of the Sacred Heart, but they are truly there because our Lord has told us, I am the light of the world, okay? He who believes in me does not walk in darkness, our Lord says. We see there, in a sense, a reminder of the transfiguration. When you see the image of the Sacred Heart and you see the rays of light emitted by that in the image of the Sacred Heart, you see a kind of representation of the transfiguration of our Lord who allowed the brilliance of that light of his glorified soul to be, to radiate. Of course, we have the crown of thorns, but here you have the crown of thorns not on our Lord's head, but surrounding his heart. We know the real crown of thorns was placed upon our Lord's head, but not just placed there, it was beaten into his head. It was hammered into his head. We know the soldiers mocked our Lord, mocked his kingdom, mocked his kingship, mocked his sovereignty. We know that they plated the crown of thorns to mock him, but they also had a rod there, and the rod was supposed to be our Lord's scepter, but they snatched it out of his hand, and they beat that crown of thorns into his head. Well, the crown of thorns in the image of the Sacred Heart surrounds the heart of our Lord. And what does that tell us? Well, it's there to tell us that the outward sufferings of our Lord with the crown of thorns, even the crown of thorns on his head, which Dr. Zugubi, one of the researchers on the shroud, believed to be the worst suffering that our Lord endured. Because you know what it is, for those of you who know what it is to have a migraine headache, you know how intense that is. They, those who suffer migraine headaches know how intensely painful it is and how debilitating it is. And Dr. Zugubi points out that the crown of thorns would have very likely caused that same feeling in our Lord's head. And therefore that excruciating pain of the crown of thorns was not just something ornamental. It was not just the mockery. It caused him great physical suffering. But the real suffering of our Lord was what we don't see. When we look at our crucifixes, we see a little splash of red paint here, a little splash of red paint there that represents the blood, that represents the wounds. In fact, none of our crucifixes could adequately represent 
our Lord's crucifixion, or even what is on the shroud. Because if we saw a crucifix that adequately pictured our Lord in that way, we couldn't look at it. We'd be horrified. We'd be speechless. It would be very difficult to even pray because of what we saw there. Remember that the gospel says from the tip of his head to the tip of his toe, there was nothing attractive, nothing left of beauty in him. It was all marred. And we know that in our Lord's uh, passion, there were two things that were left unwounded until the very end. Our Lord was crowned with thorns. He was scourged all over. He was spat upon. He was beaten. His eye was swollen closed, as we see from the shroud. But there were two things that remained unwounded. Those were his hands and his feet, because he needed those to carry the cross to Calvary. And when he had carried the cross to Calvary, then it was time to wound those also. And with that, the wounding of our Lord was complete. Truly, it was complete. There was not anywhere on his body a sound place, a place that had not been tortured with some wound. So, we still have to realize, though, that as horrific would be the sight of a crucifix that justly represented to the human eye what Mary and John and Mary Magdalene saw on Calvary, such that we couldn't have that image hanging in our churches anywhere. Because it would give nightmares to the children, and it would be such so horrible it would be a distraction for most of us. That that was just the outward. That was just the external suffering of our Lord. That's what we could do to him physically. Those are the pains we could cause him physically. That's what we did to his body. It's what we did to the soul of Christ. That was the real sufferings of our Lord. And these were invisible to us. But our Lord expressed them. They did express themselves at times. Our Lord expressed the sufferings that he felt interiorly before we struck the first blow. And that is when he said to his apostles, when he was entering the Garden of Gethsemane, my soul is sorrowful even unto death. There our Lord unveils the sorrow that he feels in his human soul. And he says that it is a sorrow that could cause death. It is great enough to be lethal. And that's how we started. Before the first drop of blood was shed by us or even sweated by him in the garden, before the first drop of blood came from him, that sorrow was already there. And we might say even that it was because of that sorrow that he sweat blood. It was that very anguish that caused the bloody sweat. You know, the word anguish is an interesting word. If you examine the etymology, the origins of that, where do you find in the ancient, the Indo-European language system, anguish me, comes from the word for narrow, narrow, restrictive, pressing. 
and it is the root of the word for snake. Understandably so, of course. But we talk about the anguish that our Lord suffered interiorly in his soul. And we realize but well, this, this word also is tied with the word for snake or serpent. And we relate that then to the serpent in the garden of Gethsemane. We relate that to that anguish as though our Lord was being constricted because it has that meaning too, to be constricted and struggling for breath. These are all tied together etymologically and they're all tied together in a way mystically and spiritually too. Because our Lord struggling for breath on the cross truly experienced that anguish of that, that serpent, as it were, trying to squeeze the very life out of him. Well, I apologize, it went a little longer than I intended. But I just want uh, us to have a greater appreciation again for what we see, what we hear in the image of the Sacred Heart, that the crown of thorns surrounding his heart signifies the anguish of spirit that he felt. And we must not forget that because that was the greatest of the sufferings of our Lord. Far worse than any of the physical torments we could inflict upon him was the anguish that he experienced for our sakes. All so that you and I would never have to experience that anguish. He took it upon himself. So um, I hope that something said today might help you appreciate a little bit more the Mass and uh, also the devotion to the Sacred Heart, which, as our Lord himself told St. Gertrude, was reserved for these last times, and that we take this very seriously, take it close to our own hearts, and uh, keep in mind the 12 promises that our Lord made to those who have devotion to his sacred heart, these precious promises that are so dear to us. Well, keep them in mind. Let's pray and be on our way.